You're listening to audio from The Orchard Church in Collierville, Tennessee. If you would like more information about our church or our ministries, please visit theorchardchurch.com. If you brought a Bible, go ahead and go to Luke chapter 24, or if you have a Bible app on your phone, you can go to YouVersion in the App Store, download a version of the Bible there, and go to Luke chapter uh, 24. John and I are going to tag team this morning, so we're going to go back and forth. Um, it's an experiment, and we thought maybe Easter is a good time uh, to do that. <laughs> <So> <laughs> We're going to look at my favorite resurrection story. There are 11 different stories of Jesus appearing to people in the New Testament. This is my favorite, and I'll tell you why it's my favorite. I'm in it. It's my story. I mean, you can write my name in the story, and not only that, it is the story of every person in this room at one point or another. You can write your name in this particular story. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through the text from Luke chapter 24, make a couple of comments, um, and then we're going to end the service today uh, with baptism. And while these baskets are going, let me make a couple of uh, quick uh, ask of you. If you would, if you don't need the handout that you received, I think we might run short. And if you can leave yours, if you need it, that's fine, please take it. If you can leave it at the door, that will help us. And after the service is over, would you kind of look around your seat and Police sit there, pick up some uh, trash or bottles of water or donut remnants, whatever, um, and just take it out with you so that the next service, when they come in, they'll come into a place that's relatively clean. So the scripture is going to be on the screen if you didn't bring a Bible. It's about a walk that two men took. It's my favorite story. Verse 13, Luke chapter 24 says, That very day, which is Easter, resurrection day, Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So it starts with a seven-mile walk. How many of you have ever walked seven miles? How long would it take to walk seven miles? If you walk three and a half miles an hour, which is kind of an average pace, how long would it take to walk seven miles? Ah, About two hours. Does anybody here know, those of you who are trivia buffs, anybody know the longest walk in history? 1977, a man by the name of George Megan walked from the southern tip of South America to the northern tip of Alaska, 19,000 miles on a walk. Why did he do it? I don't have a clue. (laughs) But this is a seven-mile walk. Where are they going? They're going home. They're defeated. Um, They built their life around Jesus, and he is dead So lights out, party's over, close the door, go home. They can't understand why Jesus had to die. I mean, a dead Messiah meant nothing to them. Verse 14, they were talking with each other about all of these things that had just happened. So they're confused. How could God let someone as wonderful as Jesus die? And then they get the news about the empty tomb and people who are talking about seeing Jesus. And they're just confused. They can't make sense of what they're hearing. Do you ever look at those uh, 3D pictures uh, and people say, if you look hard enough, you'll see the picture within the picture. If you're like me, you never do see that. And they were looking and trying to understand and they just couldn't understand. And I was like that. I was a teenager, gone to Sunday school, gone to church. I knew the facts about Christianity, the virgin birth, the death of Jesus, uh, the resurrection. 
but I couldn't make it make sense to me. Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, what's interesting is he knows them. They don't know him. And he approaches them. Long before anybody becomes a Christian, before we ever thought, thought about seeking God, God was seeking us. God was approaching us. And many times Jesus can be near us and we don't recognize him at all because he has not revealed himself to us. Verse 15, they were talking, discussing these things. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Apparently God somehow obscured their vision. Verse 17, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And this next verse is meant to be humorous. This is an example of biblical humor. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here? Today we would say, you've been under a rock. Um, you don't know what's happening. And here's the humor. He's the only one who knows what's happening. He could have said, I've been in a tomb the last three days. I know everything about everything that is happening. So Jesus knows what's been happening. We know, reading this, what has been happening. They didn't know what had been happening didn't understand it. And it's like we're reading this and we want to jump in the story and say, open your eyes. Look at his hands. Look at the hole in his side. Believe. But Jesus draws them out. He wants to get them to talk about the pieces of the puzzle that don't make sense. Verse 19, he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God, he was holy. And all the people, he was popular. And how our, high, our chief priest and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Meaning, why would they let this wonderful person die? And the next verse is the key to this story. Very important. Verse 21. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. So they've watched Jesus' ministry. They've seen his, his power, heard his wisdom, and um, they were feeling under the boot of the Roman government. They were sick of seeing Roman soldiers in their streets. They were sick of the taxes they were having to pay to the Roman government. They were sick of the Roman op op occupation. They were just sick of it all, and they begin to connect the dots. Here comes this charismatic, wonderful leader who is self-disciplined and compassionate, magnetic. People are coming to him uh, by the thousands. He's fearless, incredible communicator. To top it off, he possesses supernatural powers. And so they think, God has finally heard our prayers to send a liberator, Messiah, to get the Roman boot, get, kick the Romans out of, our, out of our area so we can get about the business of just normal living, so we can run the government ourselves, so that we can live comfortable lives and easy lives. He's going to change a regime. It's a regime changer. Yes, and besides all this, goes on, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they'd even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. They had the facts. 
empty tomb, people claiming they had seen Jesus, been with Jesus, but they were not convinced. How could a dead person be the Holy One of God? And Jesus realized they've missed the whole point. They've missed it altogether. He said to them, verse 25, O foolish ones. In other words, there's someone here who is foolish, and it's not me. And slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, underline that word necessary, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Bam. You got the information now. 15 centuries you've had a Bible. The whole point. And Jesus gives them the best sermon they have ever heard. Now, how long was this walk? How many hours? Two hours. How long did Jesus' sermon take? Two hours. That's a good Easter sermon. Just being fair here. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wonder what that was like to hear that story. John, come tell us what he might have said. They would have been familiar with the stories. These are stories that they would have heard since they were children. These are things that they heard when they were still sitting close to mom. These are things that they heard in the synagogue. These are things that they heard in their gatherings, beginning with Moses and moving through the prophets. Moses, as we open our Bibles, we open and we see this book called Genesis. But the reality is for us that in the canon of our scripture, those first five books are attributed to Moses. Where do you start in a story to talk about the pre-existent one? The, the God who created all things. Jesus was no tribal deity that they were trying to explain things that were supernatural. No, this is the high king of heaven and everything lives and moves and has its being in him. And so the story starts in the beginning. And most know this story. Our first parents, they're in the Garden of Eden, this paradise where they enjoyed unfettered access to God, walking and talking. But our first parents, like us, don't like to respond to rules, rebels disobedient at heart. And something happened that changed everything. Instead of trusting that God's word was true and good and that he would do exactly what he said he would do, they bought a lie and thought that somehow in their self-actualization that they could be like God, taking of a forbidden fruit. And in that moment, things changed. Things got twisted and separated. Alienation. Our first parents no longer in an innocent place in paradise, enjoying each other without any manipulation, without any jealousy, without any relational strife. And now they're hiding. They're hiding from each other. Ridiculous, crouching behind some sort of foliage as they desperately grasp for some sort of leaf to cover their shame and their guilt. And they do their best. But the worst thing is what was once a joyful experience to hear God coming was now a terrifying reality. Sin brings death. In hiding, our first parents had become the object of God's wrath, but they had also become the object of God's gracious. Search. Adam, where are you? 
Well, I hid myself because I'm sinful. And we begin this journey where we find out that plant coverings, they tried to do away with their shame and their guilt that wasn't going to work, and God begins to give us a picture. Something had to forfeit its life. Blood began to be shed, and since they couldn't cover themselves, God covered them, but at the cost of a life. Moses in his writings, most are familiar with his law, and you come to this place where they talk about this thing called the tabernacle. It's the place where God manifests his presence, but in that place, even in the tabernacle, there's this most holy place, and in that dark cubicle, you couldn't just come whenever you wanted to, however you wanted to. Sin brought that separation, and now there was going to have to be some mediation. Now there was going to have to be a removal of sin. You don't get to just come to God on your terms. You come on his. A priest had to go through extra, extra rituals, extra cleansing. Blood had to be spilt. And as he would make his way, the same cherubim that separated us from Eden as paradise was lost are now the cherubim that sit over the mercy seat. Blood sprinkled. Sin must be atoned for. God's holiness is real. His wrath is real, but so too his love. Surely in the prophets, Jesus walking on this road must have said, remember what Isaiah said. He, he spoke of this servant who was coming, but this was not going to be a servant that you expect. This servant king who would come to liberate people, he's going to be despised. He's going to be rejected. He's not going to be something that people embrace. He's not going to be something that people long for. They're going to misunderstand him, but it is the will of the Father to crush. This son, this servant, a forfeiture of life to cover and take away sin. How could it be that someone could bear the iniquity of us all? We all know that all of us like sheep have gone astray. All of us know the shame and guilt of our sin. And on that day, walking toward Emmaus, beginning with Moses, working his way to the prophets, Jesus explains that the Son of Man had to suffer. I think when he got to uh, Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, I'd put my hand up. That's me. I've gone astray more times than I want to think about. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So they're hearing this from Jesus as they're walking along. So what do they do? They begin to pursue him. Look at verse 28. As they drew near the village to which they were going, he acted as if he were going further. Why? Because Jesus Christ will not impose himself on anyone. He must be invited. So verse 29, they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. It's toward evening and the day is now far spent. In other words, don't leave. We'd like to hear more. Come home with us, please. So he went in to stay with them. And in my mind, this is fleshing out what, what the Bible says I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone will open the door, invite me in, 
I'll come in and I'll sup with you, eat with you, and, and you with me. So verse 30 says, and this is the amazing thing, that the God of the universe will do the same thing for you individually, privately, in your home, in your office, in your car. He'll meet with you. So verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Now get the picture. He's the guest, but he's acting like the host. So he's taking over the home. Verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Maybe they saw the, the, the holes in his hands or his wrist. Maybe they'd seen him break bread before and, and give thanks. And it was like the scales fell off of their eyes. It's like their eyes were open. And here's the heart of this Easter sermon. These two people, disappointed, dejected, frustrated, thought he was going to bring a political regime to an end and establish a different political regime, was killed before he got the job done. And Jesus says what really went down in Jerusalem was God's son dying as a substitute willingly shedding the last drop of his blood for people who have been running their own little regimes. He's about a regime change, but of a different kind than what they were thinking. He's explained the crucifixion was God's plan from Genesis. And so Jesus says to these travelers, when he's breaking the bread, I'm right here in your midst. I'm fully resurrected. This is proving all that is true, and their eyes are opened. So verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while we were talking, when he was talking to us on the road, when he opened to us the scriptures? And everyone in this room who has been converted, who is a Christian, knows what that feels like. To have your heart just kind of burn within you. As you come to understand who Jesus is, as you read the scriptures themselves, Jesus found you like he found me. Looking sad looking for something. Maybe you didn't even know what it was. And he opens your eyes. It's like a battery jumpstart. It's like a warm breeze blowing over an ice field. It, 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 it begins to come together. It, it clicks with you. Sometimes when I'm out and around, uh, someone will recognize me, come up and, and say, uh, hey, I, I, I'm a Christian too. And I'll say, well, how did that happen? And I'm listening for something like this. Well, I understood that it's not about me trying to be a better person in order to please a disappointed God. It's, it's when I understood that Jesus died for sinners, and I'm a sinner, and he saves sinners, and I opened my heart to him and invited him into my heart and into my home. And when I hear that, I think they know what they're talking about. And then they'll say something. You just hear the, the awe, the amazement that he, he would do that. It happened to me like that. I'm a teenage boy. And as I said, I, I kind of had the facts in my mind, but it was like Scrabble. You ever play the game of Scrabble and there's all those little letters? And, or, and, but they were not arranged in any way that I could read. I knew the facts about Christianity. I couldn't connect it. And, and one Sunday night... It was like the light bulb was turned on, and I understood. And I, I said, is it really possible that he would come into my heart and, and forgive me of my sins 
and live with me forever? And, and so I, I did. I opened my heart to him. And I said, would you please do that? And the first thing, at least in my case, the first emotion I felt was peace. It was like a spiritual uh, exhaling. It's not about trying to get on the good side of a disappointed God by what I do. It's about what Jesus did on the cross. And it was like my eyes were opened and I understood. And my heart was burning within me when that happened. Someone said this, it is not enough for God to show you the facts of Easter. He has to show you in an individual mystic encounter with Christ. You hear what that says? There are two revelations in the Bible. There's the revelation of God's plan, that is that his own son would come and die on the cross, but that doesn't save anybody. Doesn't change anybody's life. There are plenty of people in hell who can give you the facts of the gospel. They have an orthodox, correct understanding of Christianity. There's a second revelation. There's the revelation of God's plan and the revelation of God's purpose. And in order to become a Christian, you have to have an individual meeting, encounter with Jesus himself. It's a personal encounter that you have, just like these men in this story. Maybe some of you here have a, a basic working understanding of Christianity. You know those facts, and you assume because you know those facts that you're, you're in. You've never reached out your hand. You've never received the free gift of eternal life from him. You've never invited him to be the master in your home. You've never asked for a regime change. Have you done that? I remember thinking, if this is true, this is the greatest thing in the entire life that I have. So the story ends. They said to each other, did not, this is thir verse 32, did not our hearts burn with us when he talked with us on the road, when he opened us the scriptures? And they arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. They were revolutionized and they were at peace. We're going to baptize in both services this morning, but I want you to see one of the stories of someone who will be baptized in the next hour. So if you would play that. My name is Chris Acord. I was raised in church and taught the things of God since I was a young boy. However, no one took me under their wing and discipled me, nor did I seek anyone out to disciple me, even though I had some spiritually mature believers in my family. I had all these questions and thoughts, but no one to process them with, so I began to have doubts about the truth and what was taught to me about God. So I stopped going to church. I began to fill my life with anything but God. In 2001, my mom was killed in a car accident and I blamed God for her death. I was angry with God and I completely blocked him out of my life as a result. But as the years passed, God began to soften my heart. Those spiritually mature people in my family continued to pray for me and continued to point me toward God. 
I finally stopped blaming God for my mother's death and other things that had happened to me over the years. I went through a bad divorce. I was in a bad car wreck. Uh, I endured a great flood in Baton Rouge that took all my earthly possessions. As I stopped blaming God for these things, I realized I was really alone and had no community because I'd isolated myself from everyone. I cried out to God for help. It was at this bottom point that I began reaching out to my family and reestablishing my relationships with them. In particular, I reached out to my daughter, Taylor. She and her husband, James, invited me to visit them in Memphis, and they brought me here to the orchard, where I heard a sermon by John Nix about family and the importance of it. I knew right then and there that I wasn't a part of God's family because I hadn't turned from sin and placed my faith in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. So I completely surrendered and placed my faith in Christ alone for my salvation. After this, the Lord brought me back to Memphis, and I'm a completely different person because everything I do now is to glorify God. Everything I do now, I filter through His Word and His truth. I am His servant, and I want Him to use me for whatever purpose He has for me. I'm now in a discipleship relationship. I'm in a community. I'm actively serving at Church Without Walls. I'm a new creation, living in truth. My name is Chris Acord, and I'm being baptized today because I'm no longer ashamed of the gospel. Wow. Finally, he says, I surrendered. I stopped fighting God. I turned my life over to Christ. Christ himself met him. Have you had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ?